Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. For those who have been observing the narrative that's been occurring in the last two to three decades in the scientific and New Age press, we are noticing a movement away from strict materialism, strict Newtonian mechanical science, to some sort of new worldview where, where mind consciousness starts playing a role, a bigger role. And this spectrum from utter mechanical science to a world of the mind looks to me like something both inevitable but something that is going to be slow in coming. It reminds me of the book by James Joyce called A Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, which if anyone's ever read it, they probably only read it in college because it's not the kind of book someone picks off the shelf. But one thing about that book is that it the author grows as the story grows. That's one thing that always attracted me about that book or, or is noteworthy about it. In other words, we learn as we go, and I think that's really one of the hallmarks of what we're seeing out in the world. We are experiencing uh, the world, and we're learning more about it and ourselves as we move along. With that in mind, I want to introduce my guest today. His name is David Lornimer, who has edited an amazing book. It's called Science, Consciousness, and Ultimate Reality, a big title, big, deep words. But for those who are interested in these topics, in other words, this gradual development, evolution from the world of matter to the world of mind, uh, David has really put together some leading thinkers and writers uh, who have written on this topic. And so I'm happy to have David on the phone today. He is joining us. You're in France today? Yes, I'm in France, near the Pyrenees. Okay, so he so he's in France. I'm outside Chicago. We're gonna we're gonna have a international interview here now. Just a little bit more about David. He is a writer, lecturer, and editor. He's uh, a founder of the Character Education Scotland program, director of the Scientific and Medical Network, and president of Reckon Trust. He was originally a banker. Uh, and then he became a teacher of philosophy and modern languages at Winchester College. He's authored and edited, and edited over a dozen books, most recently The Protein Crust, Crunch, and A New Renaissance. He is a founding member of the International Futures Forum and was once editor of its digest, Omnipedia, Thinking for Tomorrow. He has uh, a website, which is David Lernemer. Uh, .co.uk, which we'll be talking about later in the show, 
But right now, uh, David, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about how you developed from being a banker to editing a book called Science, Consciousness, and Ultimate Reality. Well, that's a a very good question, Philip. Uh, In the early 80s, I was teaching at Winchester, which um, you just said, and I was conceiving a couple of books, which I subsequently wrote. And the first one is called Survival, question mark, Body, Mind, and Death in the Light of Psychic Experience, which I wrote during the summer of 1982, or mostly during that summer, and it was published in 1984. So this this book falls into two main parts. One is a history of the mind-body problem and its relationship to death. Um, And the second was more on the parapsychological side, um, analysis of apparitions, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and uh, ostensible post-mortem communications about the nature of death. And then I drew some conclusions from that. Then the second book, which came out in 1990, uh, was called Hole in One, and this was about the ethic of interconnectedness in relation to the near-death experience, and particularly with the life review. And so those those were those were books that I had um, you know, originally written uh, on my path, as it were. And I suppose going a lot further back, um, I I developed an interest in Swedenborg um, in my last year at university. And uh, I subsequently read a lot of Swedenborg and found him an extraordinarily interesting man um, because of his combination of being a scientist of of various kinds, a mathematician, uh, but also a philosopher, what we now call a psychologist, um, and a mystic. And he reported uh, a number of uh, convincing uh, anecdotes about his own clairvoyance. And... Uh, wrote very matter-of-factly about his conversations with people in in what he called the spiritual world. And so that that I then joined the Swedenborg Society and I subsequently became president of it. And one of the lectures I gave while I was president was a lecture on Kant and Swedenborg, uh, because um, Kant wrote this rather scurrilous book called Dreams of a Spirit Seer, in which he made fun of Swedenborg, but at the same time he said that he was satisfied that the experiences that Swedenborg had 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 genuinely occurred, but he had no way of explaining them within his rationalist worldview. And this is something that's still true today. So, Ah, uh, that's okay. So, let's let's pause for a second here, because this this um, this is really interesting on a couple levels. And I'm going to start with uh, more of a substantive point here, which is that if somebody was listening to me, uh, the 10 top reasons why hardcore materialism, i.e. only matter exists, is true or is not true, uh, I think life after death experiences or near death experiences would be uh, on that list. And you pointed out in your book, and I've had a number of writers, researchers on near death experiences on this show, and it really comes down to 
uh, to me the fact that if you if you research the literature on this, uh, there are many I would I would say uh, irrefutable anecdotal stories about people that were brain dead but remembered what was going on in the operating room or whatever and then came back to life and re- and, and uh, recounted the experience and I'm just wondering I'm just wondering I mean to me if you're gonna it, you know it's the kind of thing that if you don't believe it you don't believe it but when you actually read the anecdotes the stories the studies and there's quite a few pretty pretty serious scholars on this topic uh, it's pretty clear that these things do occur I mean uh, Eben Alexander uh, proof of heaven bestseller in the US and I'm sure internationally as well I mean that's what that book is about so 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 anyways I, I just wanted to point that out as as being to me a very significant um, fact, and it's interesting to me that that's is, was that your entry point to this area, uh, or what was uh, it? A, so, go ahead. Yeah, certainly one of them. Yes, yeah. because I <clears throat> I was vice president of the International Association for Near Death Studies in the UK. Yeah, and so I was involved in some early research in the late eighties when this was just coming onto into the public consciousness. But what I would like to say in relation to what you just said um, is that in my book, Survival, I talk about the nature of evidence in relation to logic and presuppositions. And one of the points I make is that when it comes to these anecdotal um, cases or case histories, as I prefer to call them, um, they're not repeatable in the laboratory. Um, But if you were to... Um, imagine a kind of legal process where the main point was to establish whether or not um, the person who reports the out-of-body experience is correctly reporting an event which went on in the quote physical world and the two things correspond and you ask yourself the question the question the judge has to decide is are they talking about the same event and because of the convergence of Evidence. It's it's very obvious that they are talking about the same event in terms of a sequence of happenings, and and that really QED from the point of view uh, of the evidential value. And if you say, well, that's not scientific, uh, that's correct because you know human experiences are not repeatable in the laboratory in the same way as as experimental setups. Yeah, I think that's a I, I think that's a very good point, and you may or may not know that I am a practicing lawyer, and every, every time that uh, I have these discussions, to me there is a very very close corollary between proving something to a judge or jury and proving something in science. It is very close. Yeah. It's very close. There's something called uh, the Daubert principle in law which is a name which is the name of a supreme court case that gave the standards for admitting expert testimony in court and that that is related to credentialing uh, to to credentials to repeatability to testability to uh, peer review it's it's very very similar um and, and so I, I want to, you know, I mean, this this to me is a topic in and of itself. But 
but I'll just yes. I, I just I just say I just say this, and then I'll let you continue. But what's interesting about the current state of scientific experimentation, I think, is that science itself, and I'll use Brian Greene as an example, scientists themselves, and I'll use Brian Greene as an example, many of them are getting farther and farther away from the testability criterion uh, with the multiverse, yes. with the multiverse being an example. They, it's, it, they just, exactly. I mean, yeah. and, and so it's an interesting uh, sort of set of events we're seeing out there but anyways you you were i i sort of interjected myself there but um you were you were talking about really the the um the pow- the uh proof for uh near death experiences which which i would agree with so yes i think the i think the point is that that what what you're trying to achieve in the court is something which is beyond reasonable doubt and a lot of the doubt of skeptics is, in my view, unreasonable. Yeah, and that they're, they're simply not, not open to looking impartially at at this area because of the prior assumptions they make about the nature of reality. Yes, yes, and you know, you know I remember when I, I remember when that when the uh, Higgs boson was was supposedly found, which again is a whole other topic. But the yes. but they that they they came out with this thing where okay well it's five sigma or something they came out with this with this uh, criterion that said okay well we've now reached a level of certainty of five sigma and you know I I looked a little bit what that meant it meant something like yeah. it meant something like there's a one in fifty thousand chance that it's not true or something like that. Okay. And and right. and it's sort of like okay, well that's interesting. Um, go, you know, compare that to some evidence for parapsychology, for for um, telepathy, uh, mind over matter, uh, clairvoyance, um, and you know, don't let me put it this way. I don't think they found anything called the Higgs boson. It's a whole other topic. But my point being that. Sometimes when we we use labels and we say, "Well, this is scientific and this isn't," uh, but the labels sort of cover up what the underlying proof and proof is, underlying proof crit- criterion, um, which I think is what's happening right now out there, where where um, some folks just label things unscientific, like near death experiences, without looking at their own criterion. Um, but anyways, so there's yeah, a lot. There's yeah. a lot here. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's very true. I mean, I'm reminded in this context of the <clears throat> the tension in the 19th century between T. H. Uh, Huxley and Alfred Russell Wallace. Right. Um, because right. Um, Huxley Huxley said that scientific explanations are by definition materialistic and naturalistic. Yeah. Uh, he insisted on that. Yeah. Um, whereas um, Wallace, who was also a spiritualist as well as being <clears throat> the uh, co-founder of the theory of natural selection, uh, he disagreed profoundly with that um, and is, uh, said this is informed by an assumption uh, which, is, which is not necessarily true. And so scientific is often equated is, is materialistic, uh, naturalistic, and quote-unquote rational, as if any other kind of explanation would not be rational. Right. 
Right. But it right. depends. It right. depends on the framework within which, within which you're being rational. And so the framework is is the prior commitment, if you like, as you point out in your book. And then the rationality is operated within that framework. Right. 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 That's right. That's exactly right. That's that's the way I I looked at it and the the irony of the situation uh as as uh more and more folks are pointing out is that the framework itself science knows is wrong through the quantum theory uh, yeah, and that's totally. th- that, that's what that is that is what's so amazing about it it's it's like somebody is driving a 1925 Ford Jalop, um, Ford uh Model T car and because it's the own, because they're in love with this car, uh, they don't think that there's any other vehicle that they could actually drive on the road. And and you know, there's all these new models out there, advanced designs, advanced engines, emission control, etc. But they just love that car, and they don't want to give it up. And 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 so it's 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 remarkable. And and to be um, more controversial. To me, David, you know, the more time goes on with this, the more I just think this is this is most this is more uh, sociology than it is rationality, or more socio yeah. more sociology than science. It really is a function of people, yes, you know, with jobs and peer pressure and all that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, there's the sociology of science. And then, obviously, the philosophy of science. And then, within that, there is the politics of knowledge. Yeah. Um, who has got the power to say what is and isn't the case? And what are the constraints that are put on you as a researcher to stay within a particular framework? And biology is particularly strong here. Uh, otherwise, you simply won't get any research grants, and you'll, you'll have to become independent like somebody like Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's uh, one of my favorite books in that area is <clears throat> it's by uh, I, I mentioned a lot in the show. It's by Lee Smolin. It's called The Trouble with Physics, and it's a book. Oh yeah. It's a book really attacking string theory, but it goes it goes into this topic from the standpoint of string theory versus other cosmological ideas. But Lee Lee Smolin, who I'm happy to say was on the show about two years ago. Um, mm-hmm. he he really nails it uh, with regard to how um, uh, the current uh, curriculums, scientific establishment wants string theory to be true, and therefore, if you therefore to get a degree, to get a grant, PhD, you have to study string theory, which is remarkable to the, to me and other folks on the street, perhaps. And I, I want to say, for those wondering why string theory is such a big deal, is that there is this conflict in science between reconciling quantum theory with general relativity. General relativity being one of Einstein's big theories. We can't, you know, because Einstein is sort of one of the gods of science, you can't, you can't overturn him. But we know quantum theory is true. But those two theories are in conflict, and string theory purports to um, to unify them. Even though, as Lee Smolin points out, there's no theor- there's no test that has ever been conducted, or that can be conceived of that that can test the truth of string theory. I just want to say that for those you know 
for some yeah, context. Good point. But but to to get back to your story a little bit here, you were talking about uh, how your your entry point here was was uh, the near death experiences and then and then Swedenborg and then we sort of got in this little diversion. <laughs> so so I want I want to sort of uh, know a little bit more about your own sort of uh, backstory on on how you came to put together this amazing book called Science, Consciousness, and Ultimate Reality. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your own path here, David? Sure. I'll, I'll just I'll just give you a bit of background about the Scientific and Medical Network, which okay. I joined in 1983, uh, and I got a letter in the post from the person who was then running it, and said, uh, "Your your name has come to our attention. I don't know who who uh, suggested it. Um, would you like to join?" And the the Scientific and Medical Network was founded in 1973 by a group of senior scientists and doctors, one of whom was Vice Chancellor of Surrey University at the time. And on on the basis that they they had all had mystical experiences, they were interested in science, they recognized that scientific materialism was an assumption and an approach, and that science could be done um, with a different set of assumptions, where it could be you know, open to um, spirituality, uh, mysticism, and the further reaches of consciousness research. And so I, I joined I joined that in 1983, and then in 1986 um, I became director of it. So I left Winchester where I was teaching, and and moved into a pretty freelance um, situation. And and gradually we you know, we grew the organisation. And then um, at about in in about 2000, so this is the background of the book. Um, I put in an application to the John Templeton Foundation, um, which has supported a lot of my work on character education as well, uh, for £90,000 to do a project called Science, Consciousness and Ultimate Reality. And there were various aspects to this. So one was 12 university dialogues. Um, I had a, already had a list of speakers um, who I'd been in touch with and who said they would be willing to take part in principle. Um, in in any such uh, debates and dialogues, and um, and then there was a a large conference in London, two day conference in London. Then there were two events um, for young people introducing them to this field at Durham University, and then finally I said I would produce a book, um, which summed the project up, and so we did all these things, and it was very successful. And so, as I say, the book was the final product, if you like, um, from that um, process of the program and project. I see. Well, uh, that's, that's uh, you know, it's funny the way things happen. It seems like um, just sort of things connected and... Uh and it and it and it came about and i want to i want to focus here a little bit about on the topic of science and consciousness and the concept of consciousness is something that that i've been spending a little bit more time on and i i almost think that a lot of the problem we have out there um and is is terminology and 
it's it's like in law one of the one of the things lawyers do almost to a fault is we define our terms because yes. if you can't if you don't if you're if you're not operating with the same understanding of a term people are going to be talking past each other and you know i could use the con- the, the word god is a classic i mean people could be having debates about god all night long but have but have different conceptions of what the term means uh, and consciousness is one of them. And so I, I like to have you, t- first of all, tell, based upon your research, how, how would you define consciousness? Well, as you say, a lot depends on the, on the context. Um, <clears throat> and and I, I, I think one has to be a little bit flexible, um, but equally... Uh, define one's terms in relation to the situation you're in and what you're what exactly you're talking about so for instance if I say the question I was asking in my first book is does consciousness survive bodily death um, or I, another phrase I use does the the conscious self and um, or the self-conscious self survive um, bodily death and um, so that was that and but otherwise, um, there, is, there are too many different traditions because yeah. you've got philosophy of mind, yeah. um, you know, yeah. in, in in philosophy, and then you've got the psychology of consciousness in psychology, and and the the, the two things, the two fields, um, are operating on slightly different levels, although clearly they they are they are related, and so. Um, when when I talk about, I sometimes distinguish between consciousness within science and science within consciousness. And the consciousness within science uh, broadly takes what I would call a third-person view, and they're looking at things from the outside in, and right. they they make the assumption that you talk about that uh, mind or consciousness you know, is is a byproduct of matter or material or brain processes. Uh, whereas um, the science within consciousness is much more interested in the inside-out view, um, the subjective experience of conscious awareness, which we all have, and and how that um, potentially has a shaping effect on the world. And when we all know it does, because yeah. if you look at any yeah. any building, you know, my my grandfather was an architect. Um, then the, any any of his creations were once in his imagination, and then they are externalized through the power of the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, this yep. is this is Philip Camella. This is conversations beyond science and religion. I'm speaking with David uh, Lorimer, who's joining us today from France. He's the uh, editor of a book entitled "Science, Consciousness, and Ultimate Reality." A very uh, great contribution to this field. The title is sort of intimidating, but it's a very readable book um, with about 12 different highly qualified contributors, including Bernard Carr, um, who wrote the first uh, entry here called Mind and Cosmos. And we're talking about uh, consciousness and what it really means. And and I, I think that this concept here is incredibly... Uh, elusive, and I and I think that you know, there's there's a lot of I would call Fifth Avenue marketing going on 
with science and with other fields. Um, the, you know, one of the best examples is our books entitled, you know, The Origin of Life or How Life Began. And you read the book and there's no answer there. It's just a bunch of sort of accounts of what people think happened. And consciousness is a similar thing. It reminds me of, of um, Sartre, Sartre, the, uh, the French philosopher who's very difficult to read, by the way. But he, yeah, had, he has this, I know, Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, the, the book Being in Nothingness. I mean, I thought when I was young, I thought, well, that's a pretty cool book. And I, I do have a philosophy degree, folks, and so I have delved into some of these thick books. I can't say I've read them all. But anyways, he's got this thing about consciousness is always consciousness of something. I remember that. It's consciousness of something. And that brings to mind a dualism. It suggests a dualism. You're conscious of the external world. Uh, therefore, the external world is different uh, from you. And it, it, you know, you were saying before about Huxley from the 19th century, uh, that debate with Wallace about how materialistic frameworks are necessary to understand the world. And I, I think that we're still fighting out of that bag. I mean, you and others um, sort of point to Descartes as being the the forefather of the dualistic approach. And, and for those who, you know, dualism is used so, so much, both both uh, in a common sense and, and in philosophy, but, but the kind of dualism I'm talking about here is the distinction between mind and matter, or whether there is a distinction. And and so the point being that one of the issues with consciousness is is some people would interpret it to necessarily imply a world apart from consciousness that so we're just becoming aware of it uh, as opposed to awareness you know, or, or like Amika Swami and I would have the same view that we're really just becoming aware of ourselves as opposed to right aware of something apart from ourselves. Um, so, and I, I, I'm going to ask you a very, uh, I'm going to, th- this question that I have been pondering, and I have a blog that I, I'm working on, I don't know if a blog's the right word, but, but one thing that's really sort of puzzling me right now is the, according to standard scientific model of evolution, consciousness arose at some point of, the ev- of evolution, so the question would be, how did organisms compete for survival before consciousness arose? Because how did they know that they were competing for anything? I mean, it, it, it's, it's sort of, I, I'm, and frankly, I'm just saying this to you because I don't know, maybe I'll get some feedback, but I'm having a hard time understanding how evolution works before there's consciousness. Well, it's a sort of circular argument, isn't it? Because you, you, you can't, I mean, if you... If you assume that um, consciousness is an emergent property from matter in the course of evolution, right? Uh, then you, you right. have to find some kind of point at which this happened, which of course is almost impossible. Right. And, and that's, right. that's actually driven quite a number of people, including Galen Strawson, um, to embrace um, panpsychism and and then, then you run into the, the, the challenge of explaining in what sense a rock is conscious right. uh, or something which we would regard as inanimate. And so, 
it's, I think rationally and intellectually, it's almost impossible to get um, a proper handle on this. And I just mentioned a book I'm reading at the moment, um, which has a very rigorous analysis of all these possibilities, both on the origins of life and the origins of consciousness. It's called Cosmo Sapiens oh. um, by um, uh, John Hams. It's about 700 pages. Uh, it's an extraordinary book in, in terms of its analytical rigor and depth. And, and uh, you need a lot of time to get to grips with all the <laughs> yeah. arguments. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because I, uh, I started reading that and I went to my Kindle, and it's the most expensive Kindle book ever. Um, oh, really? Who's ever, uh, something like, I don't know, it's something like $20 on Kindle. And, and, and for those of us who buy Kindle books because they're thinner and because they're cheaper, I mean, I'm still, I still haven't quite got over. So I'm, I, you know, you know it's, it's interesting, Dave, because I, I have started reading that myself. And, and, you know, I, I, um, I want to point something out here to the listener, and I'm going to say this to you to sort of, because, you know, the nice thing here, uh, David, is that we're both we're similar in way because you know I'm trying to work through some of these issues and I, as you are and to me there are three great mysteries in the scientific worldview um, at least but three of them are the origin of matter um, the origin of life and the origin of consciousness okay now I didn't put in yes, there I didn't I didn't put yeah. on it I didn't put in there the origin of order which I should maybe there's four because that's a big one yeah. But but anyways, the origin of consciousness, for those who really ponder it, I mean, you could sit around for a long time and, be, and become extremely frustrated over trying to figure out over how awareness of the world arises from a bunch of particles floating around in space. I mean, it is, I, I, I don't think it can be done. I don't think, I think it's, it's, it's a ridiculous kind of exercise. And, and so... But but even though I just said that, that happens to be the standard scientific explanation for consciousness. It arose from the brain. It's a, it's an that's epi- right, right. So, so yes, I, as you say, the, the the difficulty that scientists have is having taken the mind out. Right. Um. They right. they find it very difficult to explain consciousness and order and all the topics that you've been talking about. So it's it's a it's like the person who was asking directions, and he said, "Well, I wouldn't start from here." <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And and you know, it's sort of like I don't know. I I tried that in my own book, and uh, and I, it's something I'm still, you know, it's it's sort of like I don't know whether the message has to change or, the, or whether the comprehension has to change, but there are certain weaknesses. Uh, to the the materialistic worldview that to me are fatal, and I said you know I, I titled this show uh, you know procrustianism making the evidence fit the theory, and you know this whole concept of making the evidence fit the theory I mean how long can that last and it really it really is a function of scientific revolutions I mean that's exactly what Thomas yes. Kuhn. That's exactly what he said. That you know, for those who want to, and, and in fact, it, you know, if you want to get, and I hate, you know, this is maybe my top ten list show here because I don't normally do this, 
Um, but if you're going to read a book on science, you have to you have to have on your shelf Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And you only have to read about the first half of the book because <laughs> you don't have to read the whole thing because he talks about the change of paradigms, I think, in the beginning of that book. Um, so... So I so this so anyways consciousness um you know I I personally I mean, just to, just to show you I mean I like having an answer the um I always say it's about a billion times easier being a critic than being a doer but yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. that consciousness is is miracle it's an origin it's a it's the miracle of life it's something that we'll never explain I don't think you could explain consciousness I I think it's it's like explaining God. Uh, I don't think it can be explained. It would be reflexive in in that sense, um, <clears throat> because it's not it's not the same kind of substance in inverted commas that science normally deals with, and and so there's a kind of there's a mismatch. And uh, one one of the things I was interested in in your your book and so, something that um, I don't know whether you know much about. I've done quite a lot of study in the last few years of the New Thought Movement, um, and particularly in the States, um, with people like Charles Harnell and Napoleon Hill, and, and Thomas Troward, who was a judge, in, a circuit judge in the Punjab. And they, they all postulated um, the, the, the model of the universal mind, of the universal mind underlying, Walter Russell does the same. Right. And, and right. this this seems to be quite consistent with uh, with your approach, and and makes a lot of intuitive sense. And um, that there is, if there is an individual mind, they argue, then there must be a universal mind of which this is an expression. Right, 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 right. I think right, right. I think that's where things head, and I think that that um, there's too much proof of that. Uh, Throughout history, throughout uh, religion, and 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 I think science is heading is heading in that direction. I mean, it's funny because you know, for those who are uh, quantum theory advocates, there is. I mean, those uh, electron waves spread out, and everything everything merges into each other. It and we talk about fields. I mean, science is there's one field. I mean, it's hard to count up all the different fields there are and all these fields are universal fields and so what we start having in in sort of a humorous kind of a thing we start having like a mechanical uh, picture of a spiritual world you know I mean it's 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 really it's pretty funny it's sort of like you know let's let's pretend like okay we know it's one but but what but instead of having a spirit or a mind God, or calling it something that sounds sort of mystical, we're calling it a field. You know, I mean, it's it's the Higgs field, and then there's the people forget about the old inflaton. There's an inflaton field, uh, which okay. is the which. So, anyways, um, you're right. There are a lot of corollaries. I have not read every book that is similar, but. I th- I do think it's inevitable that there's a unity uh, on a deeper level than the physical world. That's my that that's my own thing. That is exactly my view. And I, yeah. I was just wondering whether you'd interviewed Larry Dossey. Um, I did. Yeah, yeah. Dossie. I yeah I have. I interviewed him right before his book came out. Uh, 
the one mind book. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah, exactly. that's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, you know, it's very, it's a very, very similar thing. And and I I think that you know, this is where I was talking about sociology, and you mentioned this great term you call it the politics of knowledge. You know, a lot of a lot of this is is sort of changing over the scientific leadership. Um, I, I have this conversation with a lot of guests, David, and it it goes something like this: Do you change the world from the bottom up or the top down? Is it a grassroots movement where people become individually enlightened? They start reading more books like yours or mine. Uh, or, or do the professorships change? Do the do the school books change? Do the curriculums change? What do you What do you think? How, how uh, eventually something's going to happen? It has to. Yes, it's a very it's a very good question. I mean, I, I think the the establishment is inherently conservative, and um, and one of the things that actually I'm engaged in with. Um, <laughs> at the moment is is a project which will be um, surveying um, scientists and doctors, engineers and so on about their um, spiritual practices and beliefs and you know, whether they think there's any good evidence for parapsychology because one of the things that, that my my colleagues and I have a, a hunch about and this includes uh, Rupert Sheldrake um, is um, that there actually is a much greater openness to um, what we're talking about than people will admit in the staff common room, and and so if if we could do if we can do a properly um, sourced survey, which finds that, that these figures are far higher um, than people would have thought, then that may encourage you know, people in positions of influence to come out, as it were. And and say that uh, yes, they they do think um, there's there's evidence for this. I mean, one example um, was the the book by Elizabeth Lloyd Meyer um, called Extraordinary Knowing, which I reviewed and I knew her some years ago. And the the foreword was written by Freeman Dyson, and and there are some really extraordinary stories uh, in it, which you know, can't be explained by any kind of normal means. And Dyson found that just by writing the foreword to this book, he was attacked, um, even though his his position was very much sitting on the fence, so much so um, that he said, I would have had to have had an experience like this myself in order to be convinced of its reality, rather than using his, his mind in, in an analytical way to, to say that, you know, if what Lisby Meyer wrote is true... Um, then it has to be true for him as well as her right. unless you're going to say she's made it all up yeah 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 well i mean i I think it's <laughs> to me the definition of a scientist is somebody that's open minded and i you know i I think I've been accused of being a little idealistic on that point um, but if you if you read uh the folks that distinguish science from religion and I it's in my book and I quote it a lot there's something from Ernest Meyer the late Harvard biologist who has this um, 
section, one of his books, where he distinguishes science from religion, and it's it's sort of simple. He basically says religion is dogmatic, science is open-minded. Science is open to new ideas. It, it's open to change. And I, I, I just think that is a bunch of malarkey, to quote Joe Biden. Um, it is, they are entrenched in the materialism, and it's, it's, it, the only thing they're open to is a, is a new particle. That's the only thing they're open to. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I just, I, I just think it's a, I, I think it's a joke um, that they're open-minded, and and um, at the same time, and I'm being a little, you know, radical here. Excuse me, but but uh, I think it's 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 ridiculous that they they like Thomas Kuhn's book where it says that when a theory stops explaining physical phenomena, it's time to change the theory, or it's time to change the paradigm. That's exactly where we're at right now. The, yeah, the, <laughs> you know, it's exactly where we're at. I mean, I, I put in my notes for today's show, and I do this a lot, which is, um, if you carry, I think we're at the end game because if you carry the logic of science of materialism to its logical conclusion, you wind up with the multiverse. And and here and here's my reasoning. Um, which is, since only particles exist without a mind or an intelligence, you have to explain order. And the only way you could explain order is by, is by having so many different organizations of these dumb particles that some combination happens to combine itself into a structured, ordered universe like we live in. That's, that's yeah. essentially the multiverse. And, and for those who follow that, I mean, I'm saying, so, and these people are scientists, and me, and you have uh, Freeman Dyson being criticized for writing a foreword about extraordinary knowing. I mean, I, I just think it's, it's hard for me to describe um, the inconsistency, and I'm being, I think I'm being kind here, but, but this is my, this is one of my big problems right now, which is, which is, I think science has lost its way. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake told me this conversation that he'd had with, um, with Martin Rees, you know, who was president of the Royal Society, who I also know. Um, he said, well, they were talking about the multiverse, and, and uh, Rupert said to him, well, don't you think that's not very parsimonious? Um, because on the one hand, they, they go on about Occam's razor, right, uh, and then they right. postulate these unnecessary universes in order to get themselves off the hook. Yeah. Of of postulating an underlying intelligence to the whole of uh, our universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It exactly. Oakham's. I mean, it's a, it's a complete destruction of Oakham's razor. And I think it was, I think it was Paul Davies. Um, there's that other book I mentioned before the show um, that's edited by Bernard Carr, Multiverse. Yeah, it's called Universe or Multiverse, and Paul Davies has an art has an article in there, but and I can't I don't know if this is original for me or for or whether I read it somewhere. So I'll I'll give credit to Paul Davies. Um, basically, doesn't the multiverse lead to God as well? Wouldn't wouldn't one of these multiverses have a God in it? And how do we know we're not in that multiverse? So it doesn't to me. It doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I don't know whether any whether any of these multiverse advocates has answered that question. 
But for them to say, oh no, it's impossible for there to be a God in a multiverse. <laughs> what, what rule are they, re- what principle leads to that conclusion? Well, I, did, I think it's, it, it's sort of, uh, it's simply, simply reflecting their own assumptions. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I yeah, guess, I guess, yeah. I mean, it's possible. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you could talk about superheroes and it's, it's just, it's sort of a, I think, I, I personally think it's going to be a passing fancy. I, I think there's, uh, there's too many folks that are, that are just, um, totally against it. It's sort of like, uh, Donald Trump in his, in his Mexican wall. Um, you know, yeah. there's, there, there's, there's many other things, um, that he has in his, uh, agenda there but but I think the Mexican wall is going to fall apart just like the multiverse um, yeah so, well, so I think I th- the, the, one of the other things in terms of change Philip it seems to me is that um, we have to start finding new terms for, talk, for talking about um, these these areas and two of the things that I think are quite promising that, that come onto my radar um, fairly recently one is is the phrase post-materialist science yeah that's um, good. And there's yeah, a, there's a manifesto um, which has been put together by Mario Beauregard and Ste- Stefan Schwartz and others. Um, and then the other one, which Marilyn Schlitz also uses, is evidence-based spirituality. And so the, these are <clears throat> um, uh, uh, phrases that allow you um, to open these areas up and, and try and specify... Um, you know what is within them. So we're not we're not being irrational um, by not being materialistic, but it's being post-materialist. So we're not ignoring the evidence. Um, everything that I believe um, in this area is based on the evidence that I've looked at, and and so it's it's uh, it's 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 the, a new discourse, if you like, that I think we need to um, try and you know, get out into the general public. Yeah, I I think that that's a really good observation, and it's and as you were um, speaking there, I, I really I really like that um, description, post materialistic science. I had not heard of that one before, um, and it reminds me, you know, when I asked you that question earlier about grassroots or top down, um, it just strikes me that maybe what we're talking about is a steadily growing wave here of of ideas, of um, advocates, of supporters. Uh, uh, Joseph, La- uh, Robert Lanza, who won, I think he, oh, yeah. I don't know if he, is it Robert Lanza? He wrote the book Biocentrism, which is similar to my book, although he sold a lot more uh, because he he also, um, he has a, a really aggressive uh, anthropomorphic uh, interpretation of Science, but you know he—I don't want to say he won the Nobel Prize, but he won a, a science uh, award for stem cell research. So the guy is really credentialed. And so if you okay. if you continue to have these credentialed scientists starting to open their minds a little bit, um, or even going back to the founders of quantum theory, like uh, Schrodinger, the the wave equation guy. I mean, he was he was a mystic. Um, yes, you know, and so it really it really is, and of course we haven't talked about Newton either. Okay, so things are things are rapidly coming to, to a conclusion here, and it's it's amazing how fast this has gone. And and I, you know, we've been different places in this conversation, 
but um, that's sort of the way it happens sometimes. The the one the one question I I want to um, ask you here is that do you think do you think that uh, Europe is more open minded to these new ideas than the, than the U.S. on your experience, or do you think there's a difference? I'm not sure. I mean, it, yeah. the, one of the differences is is that um, there there's a much much greater overt Christianity in the U.S. Yeah. than there is in Europe. Yeah. And uh, but I think so far as science is concerned, uh, I think the the situation is pretty much the same everywhere. Yeah. And and this and I I think if the uh, one of the things that I'd like to see um, is is more use of or more education of scientists in philosophy of science. Yeah. And um, because they, they they don't make a distinction between um, science and scientism. Yeah. You know, which is material, which is effectively scientific materialism. Uh, it, it's because they actually haven't been taught that there is a distinction. So they haven't done any philosophy of science. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. therefore they go on as if they didn't have any assumptions. Without realizing that they, 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 they have assumptions underlying these views, yeah. So unless I can't see how you can make any progress unless you become aware of your assumptions. Yeah, well, as you know, that's what my book is about because I uh, I wrote an, a blog once. It was it it was about there was a I think there was a book. Uh, it's between it's a debate between. It could be, it's either Larry Dossie and Amit Goswami versus, um, it's not Dawkins, it's, it's some, oh, it's, it's, uh, I think it's the guy that wrote The Grand Design with Stephen Hawking, Leonard Malovnik or something. But in any event, it was a, it was a debate between, it was a debate, it was a debate between, um, it could have been Deepak Chopra, but anyways, who's who's on the other side, but... Okay, that's no, what I read was. that book. Okay, so mm. so it was a debate between you know materialistic science and and more of the the, the spiritual or or holistic uh, viewpoint, and the and every time the the materialist the Leonard Malachnik uh, would would say something, he would criticize Deepak for not being scientific, as if the materialistic viewpoint is engraved in stone as if it is absolutely true and so my blog was basically you know scientists that think realism or naturalism or whatever we're calling this uh, mechanistic science as if that is the gospel truth handed down from heaven that that is that is itself is is naive that it, it is it is your own assumption. It's your own philosophy. It reminds. I mean, you have a philosophy background, and it strikes me when some of these materialists and another example would be Steven Weinberg. They criticize philosophy yeah. as as if it's not worth their their effort. You know, it's like all it is is a bunch of fancy talk that nobody understands. When they themselves are engaging in philosophy, when they promote the materialistic paradigm, and it, it's Indeed. it's so it's me it's. And and I think this is what you're saying. It's a big, big point, and I think that that is what I've tried to do. Because I, you know, I think you've got to attack the assumptions to really overturn this this paradigm here. At least, and I could be wrong. It could just be the whole thing. Yeah. So 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 I, so I could be wrong on that, but 
But as I was saying before, I think the most effective way to overturn um, this paradigm is to um, attack it from all different angles and different levels. And um, it's, you know, it's amazing to me uh, how many different people are pursuing this. So, so now, with regard to where you think things are heading, um, David, uh, what, where, where do you think we're going to see progress, or where, do you, or where, what are you most interested in right now in, in researching in this area? Well, I think one can one can come back um, as one one important area still is near death experiences. And yeah. It it generates a lot of the same debate. Yeah. And um, you know yeah. whoever is is raising the, the points, and um, and where it's also going, and, and I've just got been corresponding with Stefan Schwartz about this, and um, is there's now an extension of this post materialist science manifesto to deal with how this would apply to end of life. And so you've got a different assumptions about the end of life, that the end of life might be the beginning of another journey other than the extinction of consciousness. So I, I think that's a, that's a promising area. Yeah, yeah, I think that that, you know, and that's also something that appeals to people. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's something that, look at the, uh, in the U.S., there's, Three or four different median medium shows, uh, from Long Island Medium to Betsy the Medium. I mean, there's all these shows about communicating with uh, folks in the afterlife. But you know, the one that I think it's related, it's similar. I think that medical science uh, and extending life and health, when when if we start seeing some of these principles actually having an effect, that to me will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, everybody wants to stay younger longer. Everybody wants to live longer, be healthier. Um, we were talking before about uh, expanding sort of the program of science to encompass consciousness and mind and parapsychology it seems to me and I've been told on this show that medical science is opening up more to holistic cures to alternate cures and if that happens because those holistic cures are, are, are basically adopting the same principles we're talking about here which is connection between mind and matter yes. you know and so yeah, the yeah, and so if we start, if we actually start seeing the the effects of this, that's going to help. I think. I think that's. I think part of the problem is that people don't really care that much about the Higgs boson, about cosmology, dark matter. I mean, I care about it. You know, who care? I mean, I remember. You know, we have a mutual friend, Sarah Scarlett, um, and. I remember when they, when the scientists allegedly found the Higgs boson, the God particle. I remember she, she, she said something like um, that she hasn't seen uh, all these religious epiphanies out in the public. Nobody, the public doesn't really care that that science found the God particle. But if science or holistic medicine or spirituality 
shows that by adopting these practices, uh, you stay younger longer. The ball game's over because Hollywood would Hollywood will will start will yeah. will will support it and uh, and uh, you know that'll that'll help things. But I, I I mean I'm being a bit facetious here, but I I I think I'm I think that the real life benefits when they stare us in the face will will start hopefully seeing some change. So okay, so for folks that want to know more about you, David, and for um, sort of just telling people what what you're doing, uh, I, I want to um, emphasize again to the listener that this book, Science, Consciousness, and Ultimate Reality, um, it's it sounds deep. It is sort of deep, but it's very readable, um, and it's actually pretty short. It's got articles about twelve, thirteen different pieces in here that you could read whatever ones you want, but to give an, to get an idea of what we've been talking about here, this book will really give folks some some good background. And so, David, what do folks need to do to learn more about you and and your future endeavors? Well, I, have, I, I do have a, a website um, okay. which needs a bit of updating at davidlorimer.co.uk. And also, I recommend that interested um, listeners should go to the Scientific and Medical Network website. If you Google Scientific and Medical Network, you'll come up with scimednet.org, S-C-I-M-E-D-N-E-T.org. Okay, okay. And so this is this has been um, very enjoyable. Uh, it's a kind of the topics that we could probably have a series of shows on, and uh, I... I um I think that that these these kinds of conversations are I hope folks see I think this is on the forefront of where modern thought is. I started off by talking about how uh science uh right now is probably in a position they seem to be in a position where they they want the evidence to fit the theory which means the evidence to fit this materialistic paradigm. There's a nice word called procrustean, which describes this attitude. And it seems to me that the evidence does not fit materialism, that there's too much going on out there from near-death experiences to the harmony of the universe to the origin of consciousness, the origin of life, etc., parapsychology that shows that the materialistic paradigm um, should really be in its last days. And... And uh, it's only by reading books, questioning, and opening your mind to these new ideas that perhaps real, real change will come about, and we'll actually see a new paradigm. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. David, thank you very much for joining us from France. It's been a real pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck in your future work. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure for me, Philip. Okay, thanks a lot, David. See you. been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.